0: The Art of Leadership Network. Welcome to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. A podcast all about leadership, change, and personal growth. The goal? To help you lead like never before, in your church or in your business. And now your host, Carrie Newhoff. Well, hey everybody, and welcome to episode 490 of the podcast. It's Carrie here, and I hope our time together today helps you thrive in life and leadership. So excited to have Dave Adamson on the podcast. I've known him for years. A lot of you know him as well. He is known as Ozzy Dave Online. And we're going to talk about why some churches should stop live streaming. Yeah, we get into that. Why church attendance is decentralizing, not just decreasing, and radical self-care. Had a few of those conversations lately. I think you will not be disappointed by this one. Today's episode is brought to you by Pro Media Fire. If you're a church or nonprofit looking to grow online, apply for their growth program today by going to ProMediaFire.com slash growth. And by Glue, you can go to HeGetsUsPartners.com slash carry to sign up for the largest faith campaign in history. So Dave Adamson has led social media uh, for several mega churches, including North Point. And, uh, well, I'll tell you, he has got a lot of experience in this. He has also been a successful TV reporter in Australia until moving with his family in the U.S. to join the staff of both North Point and prior to that Liquid Church. And uh, well, he has a lot going on himself as well. You know him probably online as Ozzy Dave. He does this devotional that's accessed by tens of thousands of people every day. And he is currently the Orange Director for Australia and New Zealand, uh, a role that gives him an opportunity to partner with churches around the world to help them develop strategies for online ministry. And uh, he's the author of the best-selling 52 Hebrew Words Every Christian Should Know and his new book, MetaChurch. How to Use Digital Ministry to Reach People and Make Disciples. So that's a little bit about Dave. It is a wonderful conversation. As you can probably tell a few minutes into the conversation, we've known each other for a long time. And sometimes it's just great to have good friends on the podcast as well. And Dave brings a lot of value in this episode. So are you an early adopter? And question for you, do you like being on the cutting edge of things? Well, Fire is working on a new technology for churches and nonprofits. That's never been done for mission-based organizations and it will help you grow online. So if you're looking to reach people online and you want to be involved in new cutting-edge solutions at a reasonable price, here are the requirements. If you are a church between 100 and 800 members or a nonprofit with 100 to 800K in annual revenue and you have the budget to spend one to $200 a month to grow online and you or a team member are willing to commit to one hour a month to grow in a monthly call, Promedia Fire is currently accepting applications for their growth program, and you would qualify. This team will interview the applicants, work with a very select group, and you can submit your application for the growth program today by going to promediafire.com/growth. That's promediafire.com/growth. And by now, my guess is you've probably seen an ad online or on traditional media about he gets us. It's a national campaign that's changing perceptions about Jesus. And you might be asking yourself, well, what's it all about? Is it a good thing? How can I get involved? Well, I'm here to tell you, you can get involved. He Gets Us his back by a lot of research from some of the people who are best at marketing and also people who really understand the real Jesus of the Bible. It's got a budget in excess of $100 million, which makes it the largest faith campaign in history. But what makes us really different is that when people respond to the campaign, they get connected to local churches. And with early success, like 31 million views on YouTube, 600,000 social media interactions, plus nearly half a million people visiting the He Gets Us website, you're going to want to get your church plugged in ASAP. So you can do that. And here's how to do it. Go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. And when you sign up, you'll get coaching and certifications that empower your leaders and volunteers. Bible studies and conversation guides, and info on how your church can connect with the people who respond to the ads. That is the goal, to get people into local churches. There are literally millions of people who are looking for answers, and if you want to partner with them, go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry. That's hegetsuspartners.com slash C-A-R-E-Y, and you can learn more and get your church involved today. Well, with all that said, let's dive into my conversation with Dave Adamson, Aussie Dave. Dave, welcome to the podcast. It's good to have you. Kerry, it's so good to see you, man. How are you? I'm doing great. You know, all things considered, uh, coming through a global pandemic and everything, it's a fun season of life. And I'm very grateful and content. So I guess that's a, that's a good word. Do I look content? You do look content. It's funny. I have a piece I probably never used to have. And I always thought if I had peace, it would destroy my drive. But I think I still have a lot of drive. And hopefully it's just more redeemed, sanctified. I don't know. I think that's what happens. You you just told me you turned 50, right? Recently. Yeah. Which I find rather hard to believe.
1: Is that public? Do we need to cut that out? (laughs) (laughs) Did we just become best friends? Yes. I turned 50. Don't feel it. And we're yeah. Well, because we're recording this on your birthday. Can I call that out? You can call it out, yeah. Recording this on your birthday. And I was just saying, you look amazing. And you were giving me well, some wisdom advice about, um, you know, the the having more wisdom as you get older, but still having that drive and energy that that you clearly have from what I see on your Instagram feed.
0: Well, thank you. You know, it's it's uh, I'm seven years ahead of you. So I turned 57 today. And I was thinking this morning as I'm praying, reading my Bible. I remember what Lane Jones, who you know well, told me when I turned 50. Lane called me and he said, give me the best advice I had turning a decade. He said, Carrie, your 50s are going to be fantastic. And I'm like, how do you know that, dude? Like, you're not a prophet. Like, you have no idea. I could be a train wreck by the time I'm 60. And he said to me, he said, you know, I'll tell you why they're going to be great. He said, and it's not like they've been perfect, but they've been really, really, probably my favorite decade so far. He said, you did all your hard work in your 30s and 40s. And he said, what I find is that if you do the hard work, the counseling, the you know, ripping out your soul in your 30s and 40s, then you reap the benefit of that in your 50s and beyond. And if you don't do it, if you don't have your house in order, emotionally, spiritually, physically, financially even, it all catches up with you in your 50s. And it's a disaster. And I would say um, that, yeah, having done a lot of hard work in my 30s and 40s, my 50s have been probably my favorite decade yet. So
1: I'm going to keep doing the hard work. I I got work to do. And Kerry, I'm going um, hmm. to take that advice from Lane. I'm going to take that on as advice for me as well, because that's really good to hear, especially hmm. when, you know, you talked about getting your soul ripped out in your 30s and 40s. <laughs> My soul got ripped out like at 49, <laughs> you know what I mean? During the pandemic, 48, 49, just during the wow. pandemic as the pandemic hit. So what I'm going to take that. Uh, you know, um, a pandemic happened and we, we, (laughs) everything got shut down and, and suddenly, you know, I I was working at North point at the time, you know, that, and, um, Yeah, you know, started getting inundated with, because of North Point's position in in the Capital C Church worldwide, uh, people started reaching out to me, asking how to live stream their services for the very first Mm. time because a lot of churches Mm. hadn't done that. And so I started working around the clock. Actually, I'm going to tell a really personal story.
0: I started working
1: around the clock, pulling 18, 19-hour days because I was dealing with different time zones, you know, churches in Australia, churches in Europe, churches in in North America. And uh, I went through a season where... I just started to disintegrate. I could feel it. Um, I, I wasn't sleeping. Um, I was getting snappy with my, my kids and my wife. Um, I started to get really bad psoriasis, um, which I never really had that, that bad before. And so I went to the doctor and I said, hey, what's going on? And he said, oh, you're depressed. You've got depression and we need to put Whoa. you on anti-depression meds. And Kerry, I don't know if you know this or, or I don't know if you remember this. I reached out to you in those moments and I, I asked you for one piece of advice. Hey, I'm struggling at the moment. What's your piece of advice? And you texted me back and you said, work on your sleep, focus on your sleep. And it, it lined up with what another friend had told me. And so that bottle of antidepressant pills is still in my bedside drawer unopened. I haven't even broken the seal on it because I knew there was something that I needed to do. So for me, it was uh, working out my sleep. You know, you talk about the, the importance of uh, setting your house up physically for me, that physically setting up my, my sleep, I probably take it too far. Now I wear a ring to track, to track my sleep. Hey, hey or a wing or a ring. Yes. Yeah. This podcast episode is sponsored by Aura, or at least it should be. <laughs> um, I start to turn the overhead lights off at like 8 p.m. and start going to just lamps just to create a different mood in the house. And then I'm in bed by like 9, 9.30 and just talking to my wife and then falling to sleep. So sleep has become a big thing. So you really helped me during my oh. soul ripping out a period of my life, but that sort of transported me into my fifties um, where I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to look forward to being the best decade of my life.
0: Yeah, I think so. And like you say, you probably, you know, 50, but you feel like you're 30. I'm 57. I probably feel like I'm 30, or at the worst, 37. I'm in better physical shape. You know, there's a little more wisdom, I hope, by this point. And you get to reap what you sowed. I mean, the Bible talks about that, right? Let me let me drill down because a lot of leaders got their souls ripped out. And it's funny because you kind of very similar thoughts. I'm like, I think I've taken this sleep thing too seriously because I talk about it incessantly. I tell friends about it. But I am convinced that so much I'm reading, I haven't finished it yet, so hesitant to recommend, but I'm enjoying it, uh, Stolen Focus by Johan Hari. A really interesting book I got a copy of. And you know he's talking about just detoxing from all tech and how we've lost our focus. And uh, Oliver Berkman, Four Thousand Weeks, talks about, really, for for all of history, we were our, our rhythms were navigated by daylight by sunrise and sunset, right? So you tend to get up maybe a little bit before the sun rises, you go to bed shortly after the sun sets. And part of that was you're sitting around an open fire. So that only throws off so much light. and then electricity and industrialization that changed everything. And, uh, and I'm, I'm trying to go back to a simpler way of life and to um, less technology in my daily life. Like I'm kind of losing interest in that very quickly and the whole debate and rage. And, uh, and going to bed early. And, and the pandemic has moved my sleep up from six or seven hours a night to about eight or nine or sometimes 10 hours a night. And I would say I feel better. And the weird thing is, I've never worked fewer hours. I still work 40, 45 hours, but I've never worked fewer hours, never felt better. And I have a bigger reach. Like we're impacting more people. And I wonder, I can't say that as a promise. Like, I don't know whether it's causative, but I think it's correlative. In other words, they correlate because, you know, when you're you're doing 19 hour days, you're not an AI, you're not a robot. Like you're a human being and you have a soul. And you can do that for a week. Like I did some super long days at the beginning of the pandemic. And you've got the multiple complications of time zone, right? When uh, you're in the Southern Hemisphere in Australia. So when, when you're sleeping, this part of the world is awake. And when we're uh, asleep, you're awake. So anyway, that, and here ends the sermon. But um, any, I, I would continue to chase that down. I would I would continue to chase down sleep and rest and balance because I think at that point doesn't mean you won't be depressed doesn't mean there's lots of things that can go wrong but I feel like you have a level playing field if you are rested you then can say okay well it's definitely not my rest so now that I can look at this with a rational mind and open heart what might it be
1: yeah I can I could not agree with more with your little sermonette there um, well thank because, you and isn't it ironic you, you talk about um, you talk about doing less tech now, um, especially considering what we're we're talking about today, right? But I'm the same. Mm. Like I've changed in the in the past two years, completely changed how I use my iPad. That's only for creative work, not for work work. The way that wow. I my home screen on my on my iPhone. The the main screen has nothing to do with work on it. I've got all work in one folder. That's two swipes over. So I have to go looking for it. You know what I mean? And we've got wow. this box in my office, a wooden box that we put our phones into. To, so they're away. Um, they're completely away from us. And it's got a little tracking thing on it. So it kind of gamifies how little I use my phone. Yet I, I'm all about technology and leveraging technology in the church to reach more people and change more lives through technology. But I, I recognize I need that break. I need that break constantly. Otherwise, you know, social media and, and technology, it should be part of your life, but it shouldn't be your whole life. Um, and mm. so, yeah, I'm all about putting it down, turning it off, switching it as much as I can. And I try to do that at a set time every day, but I definitely do it once a week where it's just like, hey, this is um, this is my day where I'm not going to do that. We One of the things that helped us – I hope this is helpful. Um, (laughs) we, We, in our family with my wife, Megan, our girls, we started talking about the difference between a rest day and a Sabbath. Sabbath is when Mm. we don't do anything, right? The rest day is, hey, I'm resting today. I'm not going to do as much. But, you know, if you need me to mow the lawns or if I need to empty the dish, I'm going to do all of those things. But if it's a Sabbath day, that's the day when, hey, I'm just going to lie on the couch and and I'm just going to read and I'm going to take a day for me. So even separating those two things to help me wind down, that's been a game changer as well. I'm really
0: glad we're talking about this, although none of this was according to plan. (laughs) but. Uh, I think this is really important for leaders. And it's a theme I'm noticing more and more in people I respect. John Mark Comer does a very similar thing. I think Rich Valotis was on here um, a while back, and he talked about rest day or preparation. I think that's even biblical. I mean, you're Ozzy Dave, right? If people haven't made the connection, um, you know, with all your devotions and everything. But um, there wasn't, you prepare for the Sabbath so you can celebrate the Sabbath. And I think, we, you know, day off work is not the same as a day off to prepare. And the lawn does need to be mowed and groceries need to be purchased and, you know, whatever else needs to be done. Um, one, of the, one of the things, and I'd like to get your take on this, that I'm reading um, from people I respect and uh, Johan Hari would be among them, Cal Newport would be among them, Nir Al would be among um, writers who would argue this, that focus is becoming so difficult. The ability to think differently, I think as Johan Hari even said in his introduction, and I hope to have him on the podcast, by the way, working on that, is um, that there'll be almost two classes of people. People who can think and will not have their attention hijacked by technology. And I think Yuval Harari has said the same thing when it comes to agency and probably Tristan Harris as well. So I'm just, these are all names I'm sure you're familiar with. And, and then there's the class of people that just get ruled by their devices and told what to think. Very 1984-ish, but I think that's one of the reasons that I am less engaged personally in, in social media, less engaged in that constant doom news feed that shows up. Any
1: thoughts on that? Do you think focus and concentration
0: are superpowers? Oh, um, do, yeah. yeah.
1: Like, I think of all the books I've read in the past year, and it's like the Cal Newports, the Near Eye even Even, you know, uh, Bob Goff's got a new book out, Undistracted. Undistracted. That whole… <laughs> And, and as somebody who uh, is easily distracted, um, mm. I, I know that the, the, if I've got solid work to do, you know, my, my wife even knows this. We, sh- we share an office at home and I will just say, hey, put my headphones in. And when I put my headphones in and I, I use this app called Brain FM and, and it literally, I can set a timer for it just to play uh, drone music in the background. You know, nothing with a, with lyrics, nothing that I need to think about. It just sits in my head. And I can lock on for ninety minutes, and and again, this is something that I learned from you, is blocking that, keeping that block of time sacred. But then also, when it ends and 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 my my app turns off, that's when I take five minute break, take a ten minute break, go for a really quick walk. It's that whole idea of how my calendar plays out. Is, is is so important to my, my health. It seems ridiculous in it, to a certain extent, but blocking those times off where I can just, now I'm going to be undistracted for a while. Okay, now I'm okay. I can be distracted and I give myself a pass if I watch some YouTube videos or if I scroll through Twitter mm. for a little while but I'm only going to do it in those chunks of time that I've set aside specifically for that purpose. That 19 minutes, I've realized that my, my um, process is I can go about 90 minutes before I need to come up for air. And so I don't go any longer than that. I make sure all of my meetings fit into that category as well. Mm-hmm. And I always structure out my calendar so that I've got those blocks of time. I think it was Cal Newport. He first talked about this, right? Time mm-hmm. blocking. Um, and so I have a block of time that is just, you know, uh, recuperate, come up for breath. And that's just me walking around the house, making another cup of coffee, scrolling through twitter and i don't feel guilty about that anymore cuz i'm i'm distracted at the time when i allow myself to be distracted and then you know the other key book Carrie, that changed my life is uh, why we sleep the book why we sleep i can't remember who wrote that but that i got to read that hmm. such a game changing book that's that what drove me into the aura ring that's what drove me into turning the lights down at home all the things around bedtime yeah those sorts of things are so important but in the technological age there's so much trying to distract us is that Matthew
0: Walker? Yeah. PhD? That's who it was. Okay. Great. 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 I just
1: wanted, okay.
0: Well, uh, that is something new. I will have to pick that one up. I have not read that one. I read one by Nick Littlehaze, I think, called Sleep or something. And it was, he's an elite performance coach. So that kind of got me into some new, like, sounds bizarre, but sleeping in a different position, almost the fetal position which actually doubled my deep sleep overnight because I tracked that stuff. I know we're getting super nerdy. Here's why I'm going here, leaders. Just so you're like, what are these guys even talking about? They were supposed to talk about Metachurch. I know. But if Dave if Dave is run over by the bus, Dave isn't going to be able to lead us into the future, right? And when you got, you you just, the other thing I was going to say too is I I think what you and I do, like you were texting me, we started this a little bit late, it was like, uh, Carrie, I'm on a webinar, you're doing a webinar with Barna, and that took a lot of work and a lot of attention, and it ran a little bit late, and now you're doing this interview. This kind of work, preparing a message, leading a meeting, um, even interviewing for a podcast, that takes a surprising amount of energy. And I think the younger I was, the more I'm like, yeah, whatever, I'll drive a truck through it until you know I got run over by the truck. And then it's like, well, that's probably not a very good strategy. But I I normally limit the amount of interviews I do. So today's an exception. Uh, we had Dave Ramsey this morning, and I'm like, okay, Dave, I'll work around your schedule. So I did him in the morning, and then I did another interview two hours before I started yours. But exactly that, pacing. And what I do is I give myself permission to goof off between interviews it's like, okay, you can, you can scroll Instagram. You can walk around the house like a crazy person. You can have a nap if you need a nap. Because if I don't come into this interview with energy, then this episode is kind of going to stink. And it's not your fault. It's my fault. Do you find yourself measuring your energy a little
1: bit more? Oh, totally. Like mm. I, I, my guess is after the day that you've had with back to back to back, my guess is after this, you probably got time blocked out where you're just going to goof off. This is my rest I do. time. I, I'm exactly the same. So so here, as we're recording this, it's you know nearly 6 a.m. in the morning, right? I got This up to is do your the,
0: second event.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's my second event. But I know um, that and I know yeah. that going in. So I paced my yesterday evening even to the point where I knew that, I would get enough rest in order to be able to do this. But also on the back end of this, I've got a couple of hour block where I'm not doing anything. And the reality is I'm probably going to go and take a nap. You brought naps up mm-hmm. just as a passing thing. Naps have changed my life. Yes. Serious. Like, the best thing. And I feel so energized. And this is where the aura ring comes in, right? It tracks your energy level. Um, mm-hmm. And so knowing where my energy level is and it will say, Hey, you need to take it a little bit easy today. So I know now I've got two back-to-back events. Then I've got a whole chunk of time where I don't have anything. And then I've got a meeting this afternoon. Deliberately paste all of that out so that I've got that time to recover. This is something that I learned from Andy Stanley as well. You know, he he would share with the whole staff, here's my schedule for the whole week. This is how my week looks. And it was not meeting, 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 meeting. He said, uh, Mondays is my day to prepare for my Tuesday meetings. Wednesday is my day to prepare for my Thursday meetings. And I remember looking at that going, Dang, I don't, at the time, didn't prepare at all for meetings. I just walked in and and bluffed it and and hoped that nobody noticed. Um, But that was a smart guy doing a smart calendar move and so when I I listen to things like that, I read the Cal Newport's, the Why We Sleep books, the you know even your stuff, Kerry. You, I mean, you've helped me with time blocking a lot. So those sorts of things, I I understand the value that time has. It's a finite resource. We all have exactly the same number of hours, and I need to dedicate a certain number of hours that just to rest, and some of it just to goof off.
0: Mm. Yeah, you know, what's interesting too, and you've led at a very high level. I mean, right now you're kind of doing your own thing and working with Orange and a little bit freelancy, if I've got that right. But you worked for years at mega churches, Liquid Church in New Jersey, which was, you know, grew to thousands of people uh, while you were there. And then North Point, one of the largest churches in America. So, you know, I'm thinking about the leader who's saying, well, that sounds like great that Dave and Carrie in their 50s are talking about oh, you know, you budget some time between meetings and then you go out for a walk. It's like, but you don't understand my world. What would you say to that leader who feels like he or she has no choice, that their Facebook messenger is just lighting up every 10 minutes with someone, bugging them, they've got clients, they've got congregations texting them. Like, this whole thing is an inbox now. That's what it's become. I mourned the day that Instagram got an inbox, it's like, what, I don't need another inbox. I don't. And every day I get so many DMs on Instagram and I have a team for that and the whole deal. But for the leader who's completely overwhelmed, yeah, what would you say
1: to him or her? Um, yeah, such a great question because that's the majority of people, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, even myself, mm-hmm. I didn't have a team. I'm the one who responds. I'm the one who do, does stuff that like, like-
0: Yeah, you were the whole North Point uh, social
1: media department Yeah, <laughs> Yeah, for a long period I was. For a while. Um, You're looking at him. I think the guardrail thing is really, really important. Um, What I started to learn later in my forties, admittedly, and and to my embarrassment that it took me that long to figure it out was that, you know, it's important for me as a pastor to be available, but I don't have to be available all the time because there's one job that only I can do. There's one job in my ministry that only I can take care of. Only Dave Adamson is responsible for, (laughs) and that is... To be a husband to Meg and to be a dad to my three girls. That's nobody, I can't have a team for that. I can't substitute in or out of that. That's the only thing, that's the only thing that only I can do. And so when I started to prioritize making sure that um, as a pastor, I was ministering to my my wife and my girls, i.e., I was just being present with them. That's when I realized I need these guardrails in place. And then I just figured out what the tactics were around that. Tactics mm. like putting my phone in a box once a week. Tactics like being at church. I remember this one. Um, I think it might have been our mutual friend, Rich Birch, who told me this one. Oh, yeah. um, I remember being at a, a first job in full-time ministry. And on a Sunday you know, after church, there was a line of people. And I had my calendar out. Okay. Yep. I'll meet with you on Monday. I'll meet with you on Tuesday. Uh, Yep. I can squeeze this in because you want to, I wanted to please everybody. I wanted to say yes to absolutely everybody. And then I got told this great piece of advice. Don't bring your calendar. Don't bring a notebook. Um, Instead, instead, when somebody says, hey, could we meet this week? Yeah, sure. Um, Why don't you email me uh, some times that you're available? Just saying that little thing, that cut down the number of people I met with by about 70% because only a few people would it was important enough for them to email. They would go. Most people would go home and go. Oh, I either forgot or it wasn't really that important to set up that meeting. That was a slight little shift for me. That that made a big change. And then again, you know, reading a book called Make Time, um, which again I can't think of who the authors are, but Ooh. but I'm I'm reading that at the moment. And what they said in this that a guy who it was written by two guys, one worked at Google, one worked at YouTube, and what they said was they they made no their default. For hmm. me, as an Enneagram three, I want yes to be my default, but the ah. smart people around me have taught me how to say, no, you've done this, Kerry. I remember uh, last year asking you, a church leader asked me, hey, could you see if Kerry could do an interviewer? And you said, no, I've got so many other things on at the moment. You said it in such a great way that I, <laughs> my response is, dude, I, you, I just learned so much about saying no. Our friend John Acuff has done the same thing. Mm-hmm. When I've asked him for something, and he's has right back, no. killer at saying no. So good. But my default carry has always been yes, yeah. and then I move stuff around. But now, just talking to my wife about this last week, I said I'm going to try to make no my default. And it's not that it's not that no to everything, but it's that idea if my default is no. What can convince me to say yes now? And so those sorts of things have just started to help me um, manage my time a little bit better. And and we don't all have control over our calendar as much as we would like, right? We've got bosses, we've got managers, we've got pastoral people coming in and, and people who need counseling. All of that sort of stuff is constantly happening. But if we can take control of the stuff that we can take control of and put the main thing as the main thing, then I think we can all make a little slight adjustment and get ahead
0: you know, I'm so glad we're having this conversation. The book, by the way, is I think is this the one Make Time, Jake Knapp, and John Zaratsky. That's the one. All right. I'm doing some Googling, which I rarely do when we're in the interview because I want to stay sorry in the zone. You work so hard. No, this is good. I gotta earn my pay. Um, but you know, I was it's funny because often talking about agency, we think we have no choice. So yesterday I was coaching some uh, real estate agents in New York City, Corcoran Group. You know Barbara Corcoran from Shark Tank, her company. So I'm doing some coaching and she sold it a few years ago. But anyway, they made At Your Best book of the month. So I'm coaching them on a Zoom call and I'm starting to get real estate questions. Well, like I've bought and sold one house in the last 25 years. I know nothing about real estate. So I'm like, hey guys, I'm just coaching you here. But Uh, the agents were saying, like, we need to be on call 24-7. What do we do? And I'm like, I think you have more control than you think. And uh, like this podcast, for example, uh, this is a really good example. We get world-class leaders like Dave Adamson, like Dave Ramsey. And once in a while, I go off script and I do a Dave Ramsey at 9 o'clock in the morning during my green zone, if you've read At Your Best. But here's what we do. Every Wednesday at 1 and 3, I do interviews. Every Wednesday at 1 and 3 when I'm in town, I do interviews. It is amazing how many world-class leaders are available at either one o'clock or three o'clock on a Wednesday afternoon. And I'm talking like Adam Grant, Simon Sinek, Cal Newport, a lot of the people we talked to, Susan Cain. I mean, they're available at one and three on Wednesday if you book ahead. Now, if I say I'm available when you're available, it's like, great, let's do Saturday afternoon. Let's do Sunday morning. Let's do Tuesday night. And, and so 98% of the time, I never have to offer an alternative time. Now, Dave couldn't do it because he's on the radio. Um, but he would have he would have otherwise interviewed a lot of other of his staff at Ramsey, and they do it. So what I said to the real estate agents was, listen, just say, I generally, sometimes time is of the essence. You got to show this house. But I said, I do showings, you know, Monday afternoon, Tuesday mornings, and Thursday evenings. Boom. Wh- which one would you like? And most people, and they're like, oh, that'll work. Like absolutely, but they never thought about it. They never gave themselves that choice. So, and you're right, by the way, on that long line of people at Liquid Church who are waiting to meet with you, how, what percentage of people actually followed up with an email from the people who talked to you?
1: Oh, like two out of 10. <laughs>
0: <laughs> so how important was that meeting, right? How yeah, important exactly. was it?
1: Not enough for them to sit down an hour later and email you. Exactly. But until I got that advice, I was doing all 10 meetings because I was setting it up. Um, and mm-hmm. that's when I realized it's, it's okay. And, and we have to set these boundaries in place. I think that that's really crucial. If I can give one tech tip, tactical tip, when it comes, yeah. you, you talked about specifically Facebook messages are coming in all the time. Yeah. On your messenger page, you can set office hours. And then if somebody connects with you, sends a DM after office hours, uh, it sends an automatic response. Hey, we'll get to this, you know, which you can write. So it's not an AI thing, but you can just write something that says, hey, um, you know, it's outside of off sales. We're going to get to this as soon as we can tomorrow. That has been a game changer for me as well. Just knowing that that's automated happening. I try to automate as much as I can as well. And so automating it. things like that has re- really helped as well.
0: Do you think, and this is an honest question, I definitely have an opinion on it. You have inboxes that you, you can have an inbox to simply never answer. And you can set it up where you're like, hey, I'm not responding on Facebook Messenger or LinkedIn or Instagram or whatever. Can you say that and still be
1: a reasonably nice human being? Yeah, that's the default setting to know. Figure out what that is. So, yes, my opinion is, yes, I know it. I've got it. It's Facebook. If somebody's trying to contact me on Facebook DMs, Facebook Messenger, oh, I check that maybe maybe once every two months. And it's always default. Hey, hey! so sorry this for the delayed response. Uh, this is my least active social media platform. If you want to connect mm-hmm. with me, go here.
0: Yep. I, I think you should have permission to do that. And I think you should have permission to tell your clients, to tell your congregation, to tell your team, you know, I'm just not reachable here, but most people are easily reachable somewhere else. You send me an email, you're going to get an answer. On Instagram, you'll get an answer. And is that arbitrary? It's arbitrary, but it also allows me to do this without you know, blowing up my life, quitting out of exhaustion, and uh, showing up. Okay, so talked about our lives that blew up over the last couple of years, and thank you for being so transparent. Uh, I do have a couple of questions on the churches that blew up over the last couple of years, and I don't mean blow up in the growth sense. I think everyone's struggling, you know, now that we got online, churches— It was really interesting. Uh, You and I have talked about this at different points over the last few years, but my perception is churches immediately pivoted. Everybody wanted to go online. You're working 18, 19-hour days. And then as soon as the doors reopened, it's like, oh yeah, that online thing, and also ran. Is that uncharitable or what are you seeing? Are you seeing a lot of that, like pushback to online now that the world is reopened or ignoring online? Or do you see most churches really going deep with their online presence?
1: Oh, yeah. I I think, uh, you know, the obvious answer is for a lot of churches, when they step back into the building, they stop doing the online stuff. They dial back (laughs) on the digital um, in order to focus more on the uh, in-person stuff or the on-site stuff. Um, But it's interesting to me that, you know, Barna has come out with research just recently that showed that 62% of church goers, sorry, 60% of uh, church adults hope that their church will continue to do digital uh, connection points, digital engagements like live streaming their services into the future. So while we we wanted that, I wanna come back to church uh, mode, People also want the digital mode more than they've ever wanted that before. And that's where I I think things really started to shift Um, for me, like especially during the pandemic, um, you know, recognizing that the pandemic didn't start live stream, right? The pandemic just made live streams mainstream in Mm -hmm. in the church world. Um, And so I remember a couple of months into it, that was when things started to shift where people didn't want to know how to stream their services anymore. Um, They wanted to know how to do digital ministry But if we take this tack that, well, now that in-person's back, we're gonna drop that off, I think we miss this huge opportunity to, to make connection points with our local community, to provide them with resources that they otherwise can't get, but we have to be able to be intentional about doing that. It has to be more intentional than it's ever been before. That That's that's what I think. Um, so, yeah, I, while I've been seeing that trend in, in not just in Australia, not just in North America, but in Europe and, and places like hmm. that as well, where people are dialing back on that, I, I think when we do that, we miss this opportunity because the world changed. And I want to make sure that we're continuing to push forward with the changes that we you know, that we went through sometimes kicking and screaming to get our, our stuff into digital. If we pull that away, then we're going to lose people. That's my biggest fear when it comes to that sort of mindset. Do
0: you have any theories or thoughts on why leaders are pulling back? I mean, the one thing you can, you can say, and maybe I've been guilty of this, is, well, that's a dumb move, but that, that feels rather judgmental. But there must be legitimate reasons why pastors are doing that. What do you what are what do you think some of the reasons for perhaps the over focus on in person in building services
1: is? So you know, look, if I was to choose trust over suspicion. Uh, yeah. I would say that, you know, um, I, I think we've been attached to a model that's based around that Hebrews 10, 25, about not giving up meeting together. And, and that's the driving force behind it. And and, and I get that. And that's, that's a good thing. It's an admirable thing, um, having that personal connection. What I fear is probably twofold. The first one I fear is that we have made the seats, the idols in our churches. And if those seats are filled, then we uh, are happy with that. But, you know, I I think if the discipleship capacity of your church is limited to the seating capacity of your building, then we're missing a huge opportunity to connect with the way people are accessing faith at the moment and and taking the next steps in their faith journey at the moment. Then the other part of that, Kerry, I think is, and and I'm going to say this is for me, this is I'm talking to me right now. I know, you know, as, a, as somebody who was on the North Point worship team, uh, as somebody who, who preaches and speaks at webinars and churches and, and, and all of those sorts of things, I feel a little sense of self-worth and self-value when there's a lot of people in the room watching me do what I do. Mm. I mean, that's just the honest truth. Like I, I, So I'm speaking to me here, and I, I feel like if we get our sense of self-worth based on how many hands go up in the air during a worship song or how many hands go up in the air when we do an altar call, or how many people laugh at the opening joke of a, of a webinar or a conference or a message or a sermon, then there's something broken in inside of me. Um, there's something broken inside of us. and so you know I, I think I think that unfortunately that's a big part of it. but the reality is technology is not going away right It's not like Amazon's now saying, hey, you know what we're gonna we're gonna not deliver packages anymore. We're <laughs> gonna get out of that whole online trade. It's not like um, you know the supermarkets down the road are gonna stop doing their online thing because they know that that's working. and I think we need to figure out, that and we need to have this mind shift towards what does it what does it look like if I'm preaching to more people or I'm speaking to more people um, uh, in the camera lens than I am who are sitting in front of me right now. It's not to dis it's not to disconnect completely. I think there needs to be a little bit of both, right? Mm. And that's the idea of of hybrid church or what I call meta church. It's this idea that you're connecting with both, and that both are equally important. I think we're also missing an opportunity in those moments, Kerry, to to take advantage, full advantage of the technology that we have available that can literally enhance every physical relationship that we have. That's the reality. Hmm. Okay, a lot there.
0: Let's talk about um your what you just dropped, which is the title of your new book, Meta Church. But you're, you 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 talk about a a move from mega church to meta church. What do you mean by
1: that, Dave? Yeah, so, um, you know, there's, there's a lot of things in there. In, in 20, uh, I think it was like August or April 2021, Tom Rainer, um, you know, who's, a, who's a, uh, an author and a church researcher, mm-hmm. he had this quote, and the quote was this, the number of megachurches, this is Tom Rainer speaking, the number of megachurches has not grown over the past several years. And then he went on to say that the number of megachurches may slow down or even reverse in the next few years. And so what I started to think through when I read that in in April 2021 was, wow, that's really interesting from a uh, model point of view, right? Um, That that we, a lot of church leaders aim for church growth, more people in the buildings, when that starts to grow exponentially, you get a mega church. So what I started to think through was in the modern world, how how is that going to shift or in the future of the church, how is that going to shift? And in my mind, um, you know the the term meta church was a term that you know I made this up and I made this up long before uh, Mark Zuckerberg <laughs> decided to. Zuck,
0: Zuck, Zuck stole your thunder. Yeah, lawsuit lawsuit pending, Zuck. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> <laughs> it's
1: not about it's not about a church in the metaverse, which is a complete. Yeah. But it could be that it could be that, but that's sure. not what I'm specifically referring to. The, the, that word "meta" is a prefix, and it's a prefix, that mm. means a couple of different things. It, it can mean to transform or to change, as in metamorphosis, or it can mean to go beyond or be more comprehensive, as in metaphysical. And so, when I ah. apply that to church, the word "church" meta church is really a church that is going be is transforming and changing its model in order to help it to go beyond. The Sunday service to go beyond the church building. That's what I see as a meta church. So you know, a mega church, and and this is not anti. Please hear this. It's not that I'm anti mega church. No, I worked at one, uh, worked at a couple of mega churches. It changed, transformed my life. I still totally believe in that. and I love that. Mm. But but a mega church is one expression of church with a large community. What I would say a meta church is is multiple expressions expressions of church community. In person, online, YouTube, podcast, virtual church, house church, um, all of those th- church in at work, you know, during the lunch and things like that. But with one mission, and that mission mm. is to go into all the world, preach the gospel, and make disciples. So a megachurch is that one expression, which is great. A meta church is multiple expressions. That's that's how I would define the two.
0: I think that's a great that's a great metaphor for what I think church could be, which really pokes at something I've been concerned about as well over the last couple of years. And that is, I think the last two years, three years, have revealed what I would call our building centricity. In other words, that if ministry is going to happen, it has to happen in a building owned or leased by the church. That somehow if it happens at your house, it's a little less real than if it happens inside the building et cetera. Do you know why churches historically or even in the current generation have become so building centric? And then what is the, what is the downside of being so
1: building centric? Kerry, this wasn't on our list of questions. <laughs> no, it wasn't. <laughs> no, I'm sorry. But neither, was, neither was the sleep tangent that we went on as well. Uh, you know, I think that that's a great question. Um, Again, I want to choose trust over suspicion, but I, I, yeah. I think the reality is why have we become building-centric? Because, first of all, there's a model that was built up that, that said this is the way, quote-unquote, church looks, and it looks like it being in a building, um, which is – there's a whole first-century outlook on that we could dive into as well. Mm-hmm. But I think then once churches own a building, there's there's a financial implication to that, mm. for sure. And, and, mm-hmm. and, and churches need to start, um, you know, making sure that that building's getting the proper use around it. But I think we miss a lot of things when we do that. And part of it is we miss the data. I mean, long before COVID hit, long before 2020, um, church attendance had either plateaued or was in decline. I mean, all the studies from Barnard show that, right? And, and not just from Barna, here in Australia, there's, there's organizations like MacRindle, who would say exactly the same thing, that mm-hmm. it had plateaued or was was going down, but what I noticed during that period, you know, this is like I'm talking 2017, was at North Point, our number of podcast listeners was going through the roof. Um, your audience on podcast was going through the roof. The number of people who watched our content on YouTube went up and to the right in a dramatic fashion around the 2018 mark, right?
0: Hmm. And
1: so, what I started to think through was. Well, all the the research told us that church attendance was decreasing. I actually just started to think it's not decreasing, it's decentralizing. Uh We are moving it out of the... So yeah, church attendance is not decreasing. It's been decentralizing. We're taking it out of that central location in a building. And instead, people are starting to access our content more and more through podcasts, through video on demand, through YouTube, through social media, through live streaming—they're the things that people are accessing our content. So, if they're doing that, what can we do during the week that will supplement that and bring them into our church community? Or what do we need to change about our broadcast model to to connect with people who live within the context that God has, you know, called us to serve in that community that God has called us to serve in? I think for two. I think this is, goes into the next part of the, the answer to the question. Um, I think mm. there's a philosophical change that needs to happen from a decentralized, that decentralized model. And it's not like that we're just throwing our hands up and saying, all right, we've got to surrender to this. I think it's happening anyway. But I think we also need to understand that, that Hebrews 10.25, let us not give up meeting together. I think we need to recognize, Kerry, that in the first century, the only way to meet together was to meet together, like physically. <laughs> but where we are now, We have this opportunity to connect with so many other people through different mediums like podcasts, like Zoom calls, like live streaming of services, like social media. And we need to recognize that those things are just as valid as meeting together in person. This is the the crux of what I would call Hmm. the meta church. And it's interesting to me. One of the things I think is super interesting Malachi, you know, we use that that Hebrews ten twenty five is the that, that we have to meet together because this is what the Bible says. Well, okay, in Malachi it says bring your tie, full tithe to the storehouse, so we have to bring it to us. It's not like churches are saying, "Hey, we only accept tithing uh, if you bring cash and put it into the." app. Yeah. No, we're all like okay to accept push, pal, tithely, Venmo, Beamer, you name it. Right, we're, we're more than happy to accept those things. So our thinking changed around that. I think it needs to change around this as well. And we need to start to understand that people connect with God and people express their faith in the community in different Mm. ways and not be scared of that, not be scared of the idea of innovation, but actually to lean into it a little bit more and to start pushing at how can we be more innovative as church leaders? But I think, unfortunately, we, we kind of have a fear of innovation.
0: Yeah, and you know, the other point too is that Hebrews, when Hebrews was written, there were no church buildings. Everybody met in homes. It was all decentralized. I love the idea, and I think this is so good. And this would be fun to test it with data. Maybe have data, I don't know. But that church attendance isn't decreasing, but decentralizing. Because I think if people look at, we were 100 people before, we were 1,000 people before, and now we're 40% less. But in that church of 100, there's probably 60 engagements Somewhere along the course of the week on Instagram or whatever, and in the church of a thousand, might be six hundred engagements along the way. This is this is another question that would, none of this interview was pre-planned, or the pre-planned one has gone out the window. Um, but you know, you you've obviously led a uh, ministry at national levels before at at North Point, and that's when you tend to see tens of thousands or millions of views or listens or whatever. But for the average church with a hundred people in it. What does success online look like? Like, you know, when 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 they look and they say, "Oh, that that post got eleven likes, or this video got seventeen views," is that failure? Is that success? Like, where? How do you adjust the metrics if you're not looking? If you're not Judah Smith?
1: Yeah, that's such a such a good question. And, and it taps into something that I think is super important is it's this comparison that we make, right? We mm. fall into this comparison trap of, well, Kerry Newhoff has this many listeners on his podcast and mine's only getting 11. And so we start to make that comparison. I think we need right. to shift our thinking primarily around that. Um, and, and there's a number of different ways that we can do that. For me, what it boils down to is, and this is a philosophical change that I had even when it comes to online, right? My philosophical, my theological view of online church shifted. I I first started as an online pastor in 2008, which seems like so long ago now. Um, But I remember in the early days, we would stream services and, and what I was reporting back to my leadership team was we had 71 countries, people from 71 countries watching. And, and you know, we had five people in Iraq. And, and my view was, because it's the internet, this is a worldwide audience. This is a worldwide hmm. platform. And we need to, they're the things we celebrate. Then I get to North Point in 2013. And as I'm like leading through the online space at North Point. The, the, the bump up that I kept having was, you know, Andy kept talking to me about, hey, um, I've got this, essentially, I'm paraphrasing, okay, but essentially he would say, yeah, I've got this, I'm a, I've got a worldwide platform from a, as a communicator, but as a pastor, I'm called to serve the people of Atlanta. And as an Australian on staff, I was frustrated by that. Because I wanted to make sure that people in Australia, people in New Zealand were hearing from Andy as well. But he kept pushing. No, God's called me to serve the people of Atlanta. And this is the shift, I think, Kerry, to answer the question. There Hmm. are church leaders out there who've been called to a specific community, a town, a city, a region, a county, whatever it is. I think the best use of online is to leverage online to reach the people who live within driving distance of your church building. That's mm. what I think is the best use. You know, I remember getting when I first got into becoming a social media pastor, I read all the books from all the people like the Gary Vaynerchuks of the world, right? And it was always pushed. Content is king, content is king, content is content is not king, context mm. is king. There was a Ooh. shift that made content is not king, context is king. And what I mean by that is, you know, you can produce great content, you can put pour a lot of money into, um, you know, creating great videos, great reels, great whatever, right? Great podcasts. And that's creating content. Content makes a post. Context makes a difference. By context, Ooh. what I mean is the, the thing that the pastor who's in a small town in rural America, the thing, the only thing that they can do that Craig Rochelle, Andy Stanley, Judah Smiths, Levi luscos all these big pastors can't do is meet the needs of the people who live within their community because they know mm. the needs of the people who are in their community. That's the context piece. So if you're at a church that's 100 people and you know that, hey, there's a lot of uh, parents who are having struggles at the moment because of the teen problem in your local town, stop streaming your services and start putting out content that helps the parents deal with that issue. I think one of the most innovative things some churches could do is to stop streaming their online services and instead pour their time and energy into making content that meets the needs of the people in their context. the The story that backs that up for me, I remember when the pandemic first started, when I first started getting into that what became my rough, um, was this pastor from Texas. He was you know leading a, a church of about two hundred and fifty people. And he called me one day. And he said, hey, I want to understand what's going on. I said, well, what's happened? He said, I stream my services every Sunday and maybe get 80 people watching, maybe, maybe 80 people. But two nights ago, I went for a walk with my dog midweek. And as I was walking my dog around, I pulled out my phone and I got onto YouTube and started streaming live onto YouTube and just said, hey, if you live in this area and you need prayer, why don't you just leave me a comment and I'll pray for you right now? Because you know what? I need prayer and I need prayer because this this has been a hard season. So if you need prayer right now, do it. And so people started commenting, Hey, yeah, I need prayer for my kids. I need prayer for my work situation. I need care for my health. And this guy just walked his dog around his neighborhood and prayed for the people by name right there. And it didn't say, I'm going to pray for you later. Just said, Hey, Kerry, yes, I'm going to pray for you right now. And would start praying. Does that make sense? And then he he, I said, that's awesome. What's the problem? He said, well, I woke up this morning and that video has 18,000 views. Now I'm thinking, I don't ever want to preach a sermon ever again. (laughs) I don't want to stream my lives. And I said, that's when I realized the most innovative thing some churches could do is to stop streaming their services on Sunday and start instead creating content that is contextualized. That's why that thing got so many views is because it was contextualized to where he was placed, where God had called him to serve. And that's why my philosophy has changed. I, I now think churches need to stream online. Yes, 100% believe that. They need to create content uh, during the week, but it needs to be in the context of the people that you're called to serve. I wonder too,
0: if there is what, you know, marketers would call a minimum viable product to channel Seth Godin and others, where, because I think about, you know, our church now, Conexus, was ready. The, we weren't ready for the pandemic, but we were ready to go exclusively online. Because one of the last things I did as lead pastor was build out our broadcast location. And we sunk a disproportionate amount of money into, the, into tech. Because I kind of knew, even back in 2015, hey, more people are going to access our ministry through the lens of a camera than through a seat in our auditorium. So we were ready. But I think back to 15 years ago, we wouldn't have been ready. And 20 years ago, we wouldn't have been ready and actually to stream the services as they were three years into my ministry would have been probably more embarrassing than anything. Is there like a minimum level of technology production that you think you need in order to pull off a viable stream, live stream of your Sunday experience?
1: Yeah, I I think there is. If I could Mm. just remove it from the live stream on Sunday, because I think that's what we focus on too much is that live stream. And we think that that's the be all and end all because that's what we did during the pandemic and that's what we should be doing now. (laughs) Um, For me, it's social media. For me, it's social media posts, but not just... Not just using social media to invite people to events, but using social media to invite people to life-changing conversations. That's what we need to be doing. You know, Barna did this research in March 2020 that showed that um, uh, 38% of Christians use social media as part of, to help grow their faith as part of their faith formation. Right, and and I remember reading that, going, yeah, that doesn't surprise me. But I bet there's a lot of pastors who would push back on that—that that you shouldn't use Instagram to grow your faith. Until I worked out. Kerry, that 38% is also the number of people same number of christians who say they read christian books to help their spiritual formation to help grow their own they and none of us are going hey i wish people would read less stop than reading our. books Stop yeah. reading Craig Rochelle and Mark Batterson books. No, but when it comes to social media, because of the medium, we have a different take on it. We have a different uh, perspective and even a different bias towards it. So I would be saying the minimum level, entry level is leveraging social media, Instagram, Facebook, TikTok, Twitter, whatever it might be, but do it with purpose. Don't just do it to invite people to events. Do it to invite people to conversations. And that's the key, right? I've You've heard me say this before. Too often, churches use social media as a megaphone, one-way communication instead of a telephone, two-way. So what would it look like in a world where you know all the studies in Europe, Australia, and North America tell us more people than ever are feeling lonely? Mm-hmm. What would it look like for church leaders to leverage those platforms to have conversations that are already happening in their local community to get engaged with those conversations and just start letting people know that they're being heard? But too often we talk at them instead of talking with them on social media. So I would be saying social media is that minimum level, but it's, it's about the purpose behind that minimum level.
0: What would you say to the critic who says you cannot do discipleship online? It's like it just doesn't happen.
1: Carrie, I've never heard that before. Nobody has ever said that to me. Um, <laughs> no, obviously, I hear it all the time. First of all, I would say that, you know, the, in, the internet gives us the opportunity to engage with people on a level that, you know really i haven't seen since <laughs> since since jesus did it with 12 guys in in the first century in israel mm-hmm. right he spent all day True. every day with them that was part of his discipleship process that was his discipleship model our discipleship model is oh come to a 12 week discipleship class and then you're a disciple and do it once a week like that's such a stretch from what jesus modeled to us so i would say technology allows us to be to maintain at least a higher level of connection if we use it with purpose. Now, to be super clear, I 100% believe that um, two simultaneous things are true, right? Physical relationships are the catalyst for discipleship. The other Mm -hmm. thing that's true, physical relationships are enhanced through digital connections. That's the reality. Look at my relationship with you, Kerry. It's usually you and I texting or DMing each other, right? And I don't feel disconnected from you jumping on a call like this, like it's like continuing the No,
0: we just caught up where we left off and we're in a room together. Well, in the old days, once or twice
1: a year. And these days, hopefully at some point soon. Yeah. Yeah. Exactly. So so mobile devices, these things, um, they're become a natural extension of our daily life. And, and all the research tells us they're also becoming a natural extension of our spiritual life as well. The onus on us as pastors is to turn this cell phone, um, for those of you listening only, I'm holding up my my iPhone right now. We have to turn this from a tool of distraction into a tool of discipleship. If we Hmm. can start to figure out ways to do that, then we're going to be able to use 21st century technology to fulfill Jesus's first century mission of making disciples. And here's the interesting thing. I outline this uh, in, in my book Um, in in a whole chapter in my book. There was a study done by Stanford University in 2020 that found that people are actually more honest online than they are in person. Fascinating. Now, Mm. Barna then later that year backed that study up by saying that 87% of Christians who participated in online discipleship programs, such as like you know, courses, webinars, uh, small groups, things like that. Actually, described it as a safe place to speak openly and honestly. Mm. We all think that that you know people hide behind profiles on 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 social media and on, online now, but the reality that was years ago. We're, right now, studies all indicate that people are more honest online. So, as a pastor. If I'm discipling somebody, I'm going to have that physical connection for sure because that's the catalyst for discipleship. But I also understand that I can't be with that person or the people I'm discipling 24 seven. But I can stay connected to them through online mediums like Twitter, Instagram, YouTube, podcast, text messaging, like little things like text messaging. Again, we don't count. We often don't count texting uh, as a form of discipleship or as a form of technology that we can leverage, but. I would, I would argue texting is the most intimate online platform there is because you really only receive text or, or send text to the people who are really close in your close circle of people. And the interesting thing is the open rate on a text is 97%. Compare that mm-hmm. to the open rate of an email. Like we have this technology that allows us to be in people's lives and enhance that physical, which, which really is part of what Disciple disciple making years. Um, and so we we need to be leveraging those. So I don't think it's a purely online thing. Like I don't think you can purely disciple somebody online, but discipleship needs to be part of a uh, Sorry, online needs to be part of a discipleship strategy because it enhances and gives us that ability to be more engaged with the person.
0: Yeah. You've got a chapter in your book too, that I think you call preach like a YouTuber. How, how do you do that? What are the differences when you're preaching to camera, or preaching for a camera. Maybe there are people in the room. But, you know, I know pre-pandemic at connexus I was speaking to more people online than I was in person. And Craig Rochelle has talked about that on the podcast for years. He kind of preached to the lens. He didn't preach as much to the people in the room. How do you preach like a YouTuber?
1: Yeah. So, so the reason I think YouTube and YouTubers are um, so important in in coaching and training us as pastors in ministry or as leaders who need to give a talk at a, at a webinar or a conference or things like that is that, first of all, they're talking to a wide demographic of people, right? Mm. I mean, You look at the demographics of YouTube and they're quite surprising. 95% of people, 18 to 29 use YouTube regularly. 91% of 30 to 49 year olds regularly. 83% of 50 to 64 year olds use it regularly. Like there's no platform that's as broad demographically as YouTube, but YouTubers have been able to tap into a system and a model that allows them to keep people connected and engaged with their content, right? Their videos. Hmm. And so for me, it's funny, there's a guy named JP Percluta, who I'm pretty Sure has been Yeah, there. I know JP. When the pandemic has. hit, first thing he did, hired a YouTuber to come in and work on his content. And so so I remember listening to that podcast episode and then reaching out to JP and talking him, you know, I actually uh, referenced him in the book cuz I had a conversation with him about this and he said that he would be sitting at home watching himself preach during the pandemic because they'd pre-recorded. His two boys were sitting on the couch. His kids were sitting on the couch with him and he was on TV telling a story about them and they were just glued to their screens watching YouTubers. So we started the process. What is this thing? So yeah, I think there's a, a lot that we can learn as, as communicators from YouTubers. And, and the main one I always push is this. This this idea of uh, a hot intro, H O T a a hot intro, which goes against so much of what we're taught in seminary about how to preach. That H stands for hook. What is that thing mm. that is the hook in the water that's going to get people to listen? And usually most of us have this. We do have it because as pastors, we're writing messages that meet a felt need. So what is that felt need? Call it out right at the top. You know, it's that question. Andy Stanley is so good at this. You're really good at this from the, when I listen to your messages. It's 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 that asking that question at the top that gets people engaged. Hey, have you ever wanted to know what the purpose of life is? That's a good example, right? Or mm-hmm. even saying, um, uh, "Hey, we all have difficult people in our lives. What's the best way to deal with them?" Like it's that hook in the water. So that's what the H stands for. The O stands for outcome. What what is the audience going to take away from this? Again, this is one of those things that as pastors, I think we get taught to hold that till the very end of the message, 37 minutes in, but people have to get through 37 minutes to get to what what the main point is. Share that main point right at the start. Tell them why they should listen to the end. And and that's as simple as saying, in this message, I'm going to give you three life hacks that are going to improve your relationship today. That's Mm -hmm. the outcome. Here, hey, do you struggle with uh, your relationship with your spouse? Well, by the end of this message, you're going to know three things. Again, you hear YouTubers do this all the time. All the but time. I'm saying we should switch that around as pastors and start giving the outcome. So I've done things like today, I'm going to give you the secret to being, to avoid being the person people think of when they think of mean people. I've used that. Mm. That's a message that I've spoken. And I give that away in the opening minute to two minutes. So H hook O. Outcome T stands for that transition. You know, uh, Andy Stanley talks about this off uh, a message is often won or lost in the transition. How you transition, so the T stands for just transitioning into the main piece of the message. You know, it might be saying things like, So, um, to do this, I want to tell you a time about when my family and I fill in the gap, right? So, the hook is. Here's the 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 common thread that the common feeling the common need that we all have. The outcome is here's what I'm going to tell you. I'm gonna the outcome might be today. I'm going to tell you two things that Jesus said about money that's going to transform your life. Hmm. It could be simple as as something like that, and then you move into and the reason why is because it helped me when I was broke and down cut, like that's the transition piece. So that hot intro for me is one of the things I talk about in the book about how pastors can preach like a YouTuber. You look at somebody like Mr. Beast, right? One of the biggest YouTubers on the planet. That guy puts all, I've I've watched him and I've I've watched him do uh, seminars on this. He puts most of his energy into the opening three minutes of a video in order to create a hook that makes everybody want to lean in provide people with an outcome so that they want to watch to the end and then transitions into the actual storytelling part of the message. Isn't that interesting? That's from a guy Mm. named Mr. Beast. Mr. Beast. Who I think is in his 20s, right? Like he's super young, 22, 23. And he's figured out how to communicate with other 20-year-olds. Isn't that something as a pastor worth us standing up and taking notice of considering the way that 20-somethings are dropping off? Um, Yeah, we need to learn. I think we can learn so much from YouTubers.
0: I wonder if that actually challenges one of the old assumptions that I was taught, which is you have their attention. And you're right. When there's no internet, when they're in a room, for an hour, you have their attention. The, the, the win is not to lose it in the opening, but that is not true online. And it's probably not true in the building. If people now are like, I have options and everybody has seen their options over the last few years, you know, it's like, I don't have to be here. And, and if you're not online, I can find somebody who is online. So it doesn't matter whether our church has it or not. The, you know, the, the, uh, the, the lion has left the cage. So it's roaming out there. And, I wonder if 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 that is a really good check of assumption. Just people aren't necessarily going to listen anymore.
1: Yeah, you know this when you when you're when you're preaching a message or speaking at a conference. The way that your mind works, you notice the person who's on their phone, or you notice the person who's asleep in the pew, yeah. right? You, you notice <laughs> yep, those yep, people, and you, you wonder do. what is. While words are coming out of your mouth that you've prepared, you're still wondering, "Why did I do that?" sent that person off. The, and, and it's even more true when it comes to what we're doing online. Um, the interesting thing, one of the interesting things I found in, uh, and I, I explained this in the book, is there was a big study done in uh, the first three months of 2020 of, uh, it was like 48,000 churches that showed that the average length of a, of a sermon in the US is 37 minutes. At the same time, the average length of a YouTube video is four minutes and 20 seconds. <laughs> that's a huge disconnect there. And, and, and hear me on this, Kerry. I'm not mm-hmm. saying that mm-hmm. pastors should only speak for four minutes and 20 seconds. I'm not saying that at all. But what I am saying is you can do the 37-minute message, but if you add some little things in there, like the hot intro, for example, it can help people stay engaged a little bit longer. These are people who, you know, from all the YouTube statistics, are watching YouTube videos. And then mm-hmm. when it comes to putting that content out online, I would be suggesting you repurpose on purpose. Repurpose your church content on purpose. And that means maybe slicing it up into four minute sections, So maybe it's just one point. If you've got a three point segment, take that one point, the introduction you did, and and, and edit that into a, a shorter form piece of content. Four to seven minutes is why I typically uh, encourage people to do. And place that online with a really keyword optimized um, title and, and, and all the things to optimize that content on YouTube, so that when people go searching for questions online, which is what people are doing nowadays, they're searching for questions. They're not searching for a local church online. They're searching for answers online. So provide them with that answer and make sure that you then optimize that video. So that four minute video leads to the 37 minute video and maybe take hmm. 60 seconds out of that four minute video and pay, post that to Instagram Reels with links to the four minute and then links to the 37. So it's steps, right? And, and what I call that is lowering the bottom rung on the digital invitation ladder. Um, hmm. so, much, so many people are watching content on their cell phones these days we as church leaders can't expect them to watch a 37 minute message on their iPhone. It's just, it's rare that that's going to happen. Not going to happen. But they, yeah. They will watch a one minute video. If that's got a call to action to watch the four minute version, if the one minute connected with them so well, like cause it spoke to their context, then they're going to watch the four minute version. If that speaks to their content context, then they're going to watch the, 37-minute version, and then they might go on to watch the whole playlist. They might come on to watch a live stream of your service, and if they live within the driving distance of your building, which is what I would hope for, they might end up coming into physical community. That's a meta-church approach to church.
0: No, it's good, and I want to nerd out for a second. Let's talk about titling. Uh, For years, you know, I really enjoyed cryptic titling, or you would call it something ambiguous like uh, A Hard Day, or uh, The Sun Wasn't Shining Anymore. It's kind of like as somebody who gets shipped books every week, I'll look through a book, you know, do I want to have this person on my podcast? And a pet peeve of mine has become metaphors for chapters. It's like, you know, a walk in the forest or, uh, you know, the grass is always greener. And I'm like, I don't even know what this book is about. It's like, call it what it is. So when I wrote my last book, I'm like, I want it to be crystal clear. When you're in the airport and you're flipping through and you're like, you know, Uh, Oh, why it's so easy to fall perpetually behind. I know what that is. How to stop interrupting yourself. Like those are chapter titles I took that were supposed to hook people. How, How does that work with YouTube titling or Instagram captioning or TikTok captioning? Like felt need versus, oh, I was kind of artistic and cryptic today.
1: Yeah, that's what we got taught in church world, right? Was to make the sermon as, as you know, we used alliterations or we used a single word thing that we thought was catchy. Um, but, you know, the way that people consume content, especially the way that people search for content has changed dramatically in the last 10, 15, 20 years. And so so keyword title and keyword phrasing in our descriptions is has become super, super important. And the reason for that, especially on YouTube, is because unfortunately, there's a lot of church leaders who use YouTube in the same way we used to use Vimeo, which is just as this place where we store all the videos that we don't want on our hard drive anymore. But YouTube is the second biggest search engine in the world. The key the key there is not the second biggest. The key there is search engine. This is where people go. I, I often say this, and I talk about this in the in the book, Carrie, that YouTube is the place people go to find answers for everything from fixing mm-hmm. their car. To fixing their marriage. And so if if they're going to YouTube looking for answers, looking for content that helps them, then we as church leaders, we need to be there uh, with content that answers the questions that they're actually asking. And the way that YouTube is set up is that if somebody types in a a keyword, which is the search term that they type in, how do I... For me, it might be... um, What's the best iPhone charger to buy? You know, right because that was relevant because I did that just the other day. Um, and so, so companies pay a huge amount of money to get into that space. but if they've called, if the charger has said, you know, walk in the forest and don't lose battery, like I'm not typing that into YouTube. What I'm looking at is what is the best charger to buy for my iPhone? And the companies that have created content that answers that question are the ones that YouTube throws up as the answer to the specific question that I've asked. Right. They rank, they
0: show up on the first page of search results,
1: right? Exactly. That's what that's what uh, Google calls the zero moment of truth. Okay. Mm. Before I get into what that is, this is this uh, idea of changing the title of messages to the felt needs that people are actually asking, actually the questions that people are actually searching for is something we started doing at North Point in about 2018. And I got permission at that point to do a month worth of Andy's content online, right? Take a month of Andy Stanley's content and change the titles and see what happened. And what we saw within 30 days was an exponential increase in the number of views we got for for those videos that were retitled and the viewing time. Like it was anywhere between 95 and 125% increase in 30 days. And that was because, and this is the example I often talk about, Andy did a great message about discipleship. Uh, and he gave it the, the title Fish Tales, T A L E S, right? Because that was the the catchy, fun, jokey uh, title. Because yeah, because what he was talking about was the disciples were all fishermen, right? And that's where his mind was going. What I changed it to was how to be a disciple. Um, simple as that. Like that's it, not as sexy, nowhere near as sexy, but exponentially increased the views. I remember having a conversation presenting the data and Andy being the freaking awesome leader that he is said, well, okay, how do we change all of our titles? And so I went back and changed the titles like for like, I think it was two years in the end, it took me ages, but all I did was change the title of the message. Didn't do anything else. Same
0: message, same content, same Andy. Not even, yeah, same thumbnail.
1: All I did was change the title and you can do this in YouTube as often as you want. And what we saw was all of our channels started to increase in views because of just these retitled uh, messages. And then the question became, well, how do we do that on the front end before we upload it? And so that's what we started to do was to shift the titling around. And, and you know, we would, we would do that before the message actually got uploaded to YouTube. So it's super important, super important.
0: So last question for you, Dave. I'd love to know what you would say, because it's great to have the resources of a mega church and the whole deal. But there's a lot of pastors who are like, well, I have a $300,000 budget annually, and I'm solo staff. Some really practical takeaway tips for the smaller resource church or business. And by the way, for all of you business leaders listening in, you may be involved at your church. All of this stuff works in business too. If you're an entrepreneur. This is 100% applicable. So for the person on a shoestring budget, what, and and again, you know, we kind of forget sometimes that it's 12-year-olds with a phone who end up with a million views. So they didn't have a million dollars. They just had a phone that their mom and dad bought them. So anybody can do it. But what's your practical advice for leaders in that position?
1: Yeah, look, uh- <laughs> I think this works for churches, but also small businesses that don't have the budgets of the Adidas and the Nikes and the coca Colas. Yeah. you know, so it works for small businesses as well as smaller churches. Um, wh- what I would say is this, I would start by saying at least that being highly personal is more important than being highly produced. What mm. I mean by that is, in, in especially in church world. Um, we, we compare ourselves to the other big churches in, in the business world or in, in the business. What we do is we compare ourselves to the Nikes, the Adidas. We don't have the budget to do that. But being highly personal is more important than being highly produced. Too often we focus on the lights, the cameras, the studios, the, the Google advertising, the software that's required. But what people hmm. really want is is what that, that pastor did in Texas while walking his dog, right? It wasn't highly produced. He just had, his lighting was the sun. He's, he, we all carry a $1,000 camera in our pockets every single day. That's all he used. And, and he became highly personal. That's where it started for him. So I, I, I think that's a really good example of the idea that highly personal is more important. And in fact, I wrote Meta Church with the smaller church in mind. Um, you know, 99% of the strategies and the systems that are outlined in the book are f- completely free. They All they cost you is a little bit of time and and, and it costs you um, a, a changing your mindset. Um, this is where the, it's so important for us to continue to try to reach the people who are in our local community. And if we can transform our thinking around that specifically when it comes to online, then that's going to dictate the personal content that we start producing because we're trying to reach a certain set of people in a certain location at a certain time who have certain needs. And because we live in that community, we probably know and understand those needs so we can get more personal with it. It's not about having the huge budgets and the best studios. It's just about being personal, being authentic. Being genuine—they're the things that make a difference—and being there in people's lives when they need it the most. That's that zero moment of truth, you know. Hmm. Um, zero moment of truth is this marketing term, Kerry. That uh, means that um, you're you're on that first engine, you're you're on that first page of the search engine result page when somebody types in a product, right? So it's a marketing term around that. Hey, what's the best camera to buy in 2022? Fuji, Canon, Sony, Nikon, they pay millions of dollars to be on the first page of that, right? For us in church world, our zero moment of truth comes when somebody types into their search bar, how do I save my marriage? How do I overcome my depression? How do I stop watching porn? Where do I find hope? These are the questions that people are asking online, and it doesn't cost us anything to find out what those questions are. We can just do it through Google. And then we just need to create simple content that's short two minutes that answers that question and provides people with that hope. And from a pastoral, from a ministry point of view, provides people with the biblical answer to the questions that they're asking. It's as simple as as that. And that's why I say the most innovative thing some churches can do is to stop live streaming and put more of their attention into midweek content. Do it. You know, our friend Mark Batterson did this so yeah. brilliantly at his church during the pandemic. They live stream their services. Yes, but they put a lot of time and energy into creating a daily podcast that's so short. It's just a simple, simple idea. But then he also created content where on Instagram, the pastoral staff would read a story, a kid's storybook so that parents could show it to their kids at bedtime. Like how smart is that? It didn't cost a thing. They've so already got simple. Instagram. They've already got the, the camera, but it helped parents get their kids to sleep by the having Mark Batterson read a kid's story. Like those sorts of things don't cost money. We think it. it we need to have all the resources in the world, the great thing about the internet is it, it it's free. All of these platforms are free. Yes, you can boost posts. I think organic is still the winner for sure.
0: Hmm. Dave, this has been fascinating. Thanks for being so open. Um, the book is called MetaChurch. They can get it anywhere they get books. And where can they find you these days?
1: Uh, Online. All the usual pe- places, my Instagram, Twitter. All, I'm Aussie Dave everywhere. Um yeah, basically Aussie Dave everywhere. <laughs> <laughs> That's great. Dave, thank you
0: so much. Thank you, Carrie. Love that conversation with Dave. And uh, Dave, once again, like Levi a couple of episodes ago, Levi Lusco, thanks for being so transparent about where you're at and what you're dealing with. And also some incredible advice on, uh, well, <laughs> the church of the future. Next episode, we've got Brett Hagler. We've got a fascinating conversation about how to find vision and create a 10-year vision in this environment. Here's an excerpt. Right now, we we are maniacally focused on being the best in the world at delivering this product to this market for this million people. And like, that's it. And that has been so freeing to us. I can't even tell you how freeing that's been. And then the innovation that comes, we can still we can innovate a lot, but but it's all within the longer term vision of getting to that million people, which has which has constraints around it. So that's next time on the podcast. I want to thank our partners, ProMedia Fire. If you're a church or nonprofit looking to grow online, apply for their growth program today by going to ProMediafire.com slash growth. And if you want to get in on the largest campaign about Jesus in history, go to hegetsuspartners.com slash carry and uh, join. They will start sending people to your church. And uh, I'll tell you, that's incredible. So also coming up on the podcast, we've got Andy Stanley, Susan Kane, Dan Pink, Trip Crosby, Ramit Sethi, uh, Vanessa Van Edwards, Jackie Hill Perry, and a whole lot more. And if you like this episode and you want to go a little bit deeper... I would love to meet you inside the Art of Leadership Academy. That's where I'm hanging out uh, a lot, pretty much on a daily basis. And there is some robust dialogue. All my premium products are in there. And you'll find a community of hundreds of other leaders who, like you, are trying to figure out how to lead in the world today. We turned off comments on my blog uh, a couple months ago. And uh, one of the reasons was we really wanted to elevate the level of conversation. And it was not elevated, as you know, sometimes online. I'll tell you, it's amazing inside the Art of Leadership Academy. And I show up there on a daily basis. So if you want more, go to com. $397 gets you in for the entire year. And you get access to all my courses, live coaching, mentors, and so much more. So let's hang out. Go to theartofleadershipacademy.com where you can hang out today. And of course, I'll be back with a fresh episode next time. Thank you so much for listening. And I hope our time together today has helped you thrive in life and leadership. You've been listening to the Carrie Newhoff Leadership Podcast. Join us next time for more insights on leadership, change, and personal growth to help you lead like never
1: before.